Have you ever been caught in a storm? And I mean a storm. A storm, we normally think of a storm as, well, there are storms, of course, where a lot of damage is done on dry land. Trees are blown down and roads are closed because of the blocks of trees, etc., etc., and damage the roofs of our houses. But we think of the more extreme form of storm as something that happens at sea. In the month of January 1956, having sailed from Southampton, heading for New York on the Queen Mary, on the Sunday morning, halfway across the Atlantic, we were caught in a storm. Now, there was, there was no big deal in a sense, because it was the Queen Mary after all, and it, <coughs> Queen Mary was played built, a good, well-built ship, Glasgow stuff. And we survived the storm, although on the morning, Sunday morning breakfast, the rails were up around the tables and uh, we had to eat and hope the food would stay down. Well, happily, mine did. But there are other storms altogether which are not uh, natural in that sense of wind and rain and waves, etc. We all, in the, in the course of our lives, experience storms of one kind or another. There are sometimes storms in marriages and families and workplaces, financial storms where things go drastically wrong and storms of fear and storms of this and storms of that. And they are not very comfortable situations to be in. We're going to look this morning at a stormy situation in which our Lord Jesus was involved. Matthew chapter 14, reading from verse 22. Matthew 14:22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, that was between 3 and 6 a.m., Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the people, all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him, and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very special book, which we can read and study and from which we learn so much, and through which you speak to us. And we ask that here in this place this morning, 
you will speak not only through my voice but through by your Holy Spirit speaking into our lives and giving us some revelation, something we haven't seen before perhaps, something we haven't understood before, something that will help us to live our lives more adequately. We ask it in Jesus' name. It's important in looking at this scripture that we see it in context because what has happened just immediately before the event I've just read to you about was the feeding of the 5,000. And that was a most impressive situation by any reckoning. One boy's picnic feeding 5,000 men plus women plus children. If ever there was a miracle, that was. And what I find intriguing about these kind of miracles is the fact that Jesus did not plead with his father to do something. He did not have a long prayer praying for some wonderful, miraculous multiplication. All he did before he distributed the food was give thanks. Giving thanks can sometimes release the blessing of God in extraordinary ways. But you see, what surprises us as we look at the first part of this is that Jesus sent these disciples on their own without him after or before dismissing the crowds that had been gathered on that hillside. And what is really so significant, the first thing we need to notice in this whole study this morning, is that Jesus, their Lord, their friend, their Saviour, sent these men into the storm. When storms hit us, I don't mean the ones at sea, but when emotional storms, financial storms, marital storms, when these kind of things hit us, what do we do instinctively? We ask, why? Well, that's no bad question to ask. Why? And sometimes we blame Satan, sometimes we blame God, and sometimes we blame ourselves. We can see a pattern developing that has led to this storm that is so uncomfortable and unpleasant. And we sometimes think, well, it's my own fault. My disobedience has led to this storm in my life. But you see, the exact opposite was true here. Jesus sent these men across that lake on that stormy night and they were there because of obedience, not disobedience. And sometimes when we find ourselves in a storm and we wonder why, it could be that it's not Satan's fault and God hasn't failed us. And sometimes it's not even our own fault. But God is doing something in that situation. And he's told us to do something, and we've done it, and it seems to have all gone wrong, we're in a storm. But we're in that storm because of obedience, and that makes a world of difference. Why did Jesus send these men unaccompanied across that lake that night? Well, I suggest two reasons. One, first of all, for the sake of his ministry. You see, we must look at the other records of this Experience because both Mark and John record the same event. And when we go to John's Gospel, we read there in John chapter, chapter 6, verse 14, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, this was the feeding of the 5,000, they said, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing 
that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into the hills by himself. One reason why he sent the disciples into the storm was for the sake of his ministry, because he knew very well that the disciples hung around while these people were proposing to make Jesus king. The disciples would have been all for it. They would have said, this is a wonderful idea. Then we can be leaders in this kingdom. But you see, Jesus didn't come to head up a kingdom of some political nature. He says in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And for the sake of his ministry, he had to get rid of these disciples from that crowd in case they would aid and abet the crowd and make it more difficult for Jesus to escape from their demands. And it's just possible, perhaps fairly rare, but it's just possible that for you and me, Jesus might, in some situation, have to, as it were, put us aside because we might just get in the way. Oh, well, that's a thought. But sometimes we say things that are totally unhelpful, and sometimes Jesus has to separate us from some situation where our contribution would not be remotely helpful, but rather the opposite. So sometimes we're led by the Lord to do some things, and we wonder, why, why am I being led to do this? And occasionally it just could be that he's getting us out of the way because we might be a hindrance to what he wants to do in that situation. But it wasn't only for the sake of his ministry that he sent them out of the way across the lake. It was also for the sake of their maturity. Maturity. Now maturity is not just something that applies to trees. It's something that applies to Christians as well. Um, we are meant, clearly from the New Testament teaching, we are meant to become mature, more mature, as day goes on, as years go on, throughout our Christian life. A word that probably has a little bit of a frightening effect upon us is when our Lord Jesus says, for example, in Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, he says there at the end of the chapter, Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that seems like a, a counsel of despair. How can I, a fallen sinner, even once I'm born again and saved, how can I hope to be absolutely perfect? Ah, but there are different Greek words for perfect. And this one is not the one that means 100%. It's not aiming for perfection in that sense of being totally right, all altogether perfect in that sense. It doesn't mean that. What does it mean? It means complete, mature. A fishing net, for example, might have a slight variety in the size of the mesh throughout the net. So in the first measurement of absolute 100% perfection, say, well, that's not very perfect. Look at, look at that, that. That space is bigger than that space. Well, that doesn't matter as long as it'll catch fish. As long as the net is not torn. It's perfect in the other sense even though the squares are not all the same size. It's perfect for catching fish. 
And they said, Jesus wants you and me, who are a Christian people, to grow in such a way that we become more and more usable by him. More and more useful in his hands. And that requires maturity. It's humbling to realize that when we come to the book of Hebrews, we find, for example, a statement which seems a little bit odd. Because the letter of these Hebrew Christians says, concerning Jesus, he says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So again you see the distinction between the two kinds of being perfect. Jesus was always perfect in the 100% sense. Total, moral, absolute perfection. He couldn't be anything else as the Son of God. He was perfect. He lived a perfect life, though in a human body, exposed to all the temptations of this world. He was perfect. But he could only become a perfect saviour by obeying the call to go to the cross. In Philippians, Paul says that Jesus became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. The act of Jesus in going to Calvary was an act of love, but it was also an act of obedience. <clears throat> obedience to his Father, obedience to the whole plan of salvation for us undeserving human beings. If we go back to Colossians chapter 28, chapter Colossians, verse 1, chapter, verse 28, I'm going to mix up. Um, we find a familiar statement there that Paul says, speaking of Jesus, he says this. He says, we proclaim him, Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And ever after we are born again, we're in this perfecting process. Sometimes it's put a different way, but sometimes reminded that we are in the school of Christ. But it's all aiming to make us more mature spiritually, more perfect in that sense. And notice what Paul says. He says that we proclaim Jesus admonishing as well as teaching people to help them to become perfect. Occasionally you and I need admonition. We don't like admonition usually. We don't like a gentle rebuke even if it's loving. But sometimes it's necessary. Not just teaching but admonition to increase the process of perfecting us to become, ultimately, more like Jesus. One of the classic examples of being treated rather harshly, it would seem, by God, in order to bring us to greater perfection, greater maturity, we find in the story of Abraham. Now, Abraham, you remember, was way beyond the age of becoming a father, and his wife was way beyond the age of childbearing, but according to the promise of God, Eventually, in their old age, Isaac was born. And what a joy that must have been to father and mother, seeing this boy grow and develop and become a lovely, handsome, good-looking, no doubt, young teenager. And then one day God calls to Abraham, 
And he said, Abraham, Abraham, yes, I'm here, Lord. And God says to him, I want you to take your son Isaac, whom you love, and go into one of the mountains that I will show you, and offer Isaac a sacrifice on an altar. What a choice for any parent to be given. Do I obey or do I disobey? Now I think you all know the story. Abraham obeyed. He took some servants, he took Isaac, he took the wood for the fire, he took all they needed, the fire to make the, the things light. And off they went in one day, and a three-day journey, lots of time to change his mind. But on a three-day journey, Isaac asked the awful question. Daddy said, you brought the other equipment, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And father said, well, it's all right. God will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. Of course he did. Eventually a ram was found caught in the thicket, but that's later on. So they arrive at the spot. The servants are left behind. Abraham builds his altar, lays the wood, binds his son who must have been willing to be bound by his aged father, lays Isaac on the altar. Abraham takes a knife. How can I do this? And yet the knife is poised in his hand. And the angel of the Lord calls from heaven, Stop! Now I know that you fear God, since you haven't withheld your son, your only son, from me. See, sometimes God tests us to a degree that is quite upsetting. I mean, to be tested to the point where God calls us to give up something or someone that become very, very special to us, very, very precious to us. And we're faced with that awful choice, obedience or disobedience. But you know, if your experience is anything like mine, we grow spiritually. Not when the sun is shining and everything's going just beautifully. No hassle, no problem. No. We usually grow spiritually when we're in the midst of some situation of conflict, of upset, a storm of one kind or another. Now we shouldn't ask for them and yet we shouldn't try to avoid them if God is leading us in a certain direction. In fact we should welcome them as James teaches us to welcome trials because they contribute to our maturing as Christians. The disciples went through that scary experience on the lake that night because Jesus sent them into the storm. They were there because of obedience, not disobedience. What did Jesus do? He went up into the hills by himself to pray. And we saw, we're told that he saw them in the storm. He saw them in the storm from the place of intercession. If we go to Mark's account of this same incident, we read there in verse 46. After leaving them, Jesus went into the hills to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. There they are battling in a frightening situation are we going to survive this or are we going to drown but all the time Jesus up in the hills there to pray sees them he's totally aware of what is going on 
what they're having to face. He sees them. And he sees them from the place of intercession. One of our songs spoke about a storm. One of our songs spoke about Jesus being our great high priest. Where he exercises this amazing ministry of intercession. You see, one of the things that's meant to happen to us when we become Christians, we're meant to develop a whole new lifestyle. And the lifestyle of the Christian sometimes is all too much like the lifestyle of the non-Christian. Sometimes hard to distinguish. You meet somebody, you, you spend time with them. And you wonder, is this person a Christian or are they not? A little difficult to sometimes sense that. But here is a person, our Lord Jesus, whose lifestyle included intercession. He always went, he met, went often to his own and solitary places to meet with his father to pray. Here he is up on the mountain, away from the crowds, to pray. He had a lifestyle which included intercession. Now, you say, well, I pray, I hope you do, um, but how much do we pray? How often do we pray? How naturally do we pray? It's good to have a special time set apart for prayer each day, if possible, certainly, most certainly, and to read the Word of God. But in addition to that, that's one of the basics, in addition to that, it should be second nature to us to pray throughout the day. What do you do when you see television? and see some disaster in some situation, you just say, well, that's a pity, that's sad. Or do you pray for those who are helping to, to, to help the people who are struggling and facing death and whatever else they're facing? When you see songs of praise, maybe, and you see some wonderful young people giving testimony and talking about Jesus, what do you do? You say, well, that's great. Is that all you do? Why not add this? Why not just pray? Lord, bless this program. Use this program to speak to many of these people who are watching it and listening to it. Attract them to Jesus. Part of our Christian lifestyle, yes. A lifestyle of intercession. You see, that is gloriously portrayed when our Lord Jesus is being crucified. What was he doing? They're still praying. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And to pray for the very people who are killing you is surely a most amazing thing. But that's exactly what Jesus did. I want to encourage you to just think and pray about your, your prayer life. Um, I know mine has changed enormously over the years and that, that's great. Because when I was a young Christian, I, well, I couldn't be expected to pray like a mature Christian would pray. But it took me a long time perhaps to really get switched on in the life of prayer and remember they don't have to be long prayers some prayers are very effective and they're very short Jesus our Lord is portrayed in Hebrews as interceding for us and in Romans too of course as well but in Hebrews uh, chapter 7 this time we read this because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. Ah, what's the use of having a high priest if he doesn't meet our need? But he does meet our need. And right now, this morning, 
if you are in any kind of storm, maybe not a major storm, maybe just a minor storm in your case, but know this, that Jesus is seeing you now. He's watching you now. And he's seeing you from the place of intercession. That's where he spends his time. At the right hand of God, interceding for all his people. We don't know. We have no idea how much we owe to the intercession of our Lord. I'm always grateful for people who say, I'm praying for you. Always grateful for the prayers of friends who are willing to take time to pray for me. Of course I am. But I'm even more grateful to know that my living, loving Lord prays for me and for all of you. Every day, all the time, is pouring our intercession to his heavenly Father. But he doesn't stop there. He saw the disciples in the storm. He saw they were battling. He saw they were struggling. He saw their fear. He saw they felt they were losing. He saw from the place of intercession, but he saw also for the purpose of intervention. So down he comes from the hills and starts to walk on water. If we go again to John chapter 6, verse 18 this time, we find that Jesus, uh, well, a strong wind was blowing, the waters grew rough, and they had rowed rode three, three and a half miles. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking in the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. He came to them, walking on the water, for the purpose of intervention to mount the necessary rescue operation. Now, and a classic example of this again is in the experience of Paul and Silas in Philippi. You remember, they went there, guided by the Holy Spirit, led by God to minister in a particular community. In other words, they were in obedience to God at the time when this happened. They were preaching the gospel in Philippi. The lady who had a business selling purple, she became a Christian. Then they encountered this slave girl who was demonized. And interestingly, the demon in her life was a demon called Python. Significant. And uh, after a while, after hearing her, following them around, saying, These are the servants of the Most High God who show unto you the way of salvation. Paul found this a very bit unhelpful advertising. And he commanded that evil spirit to leave that poor girl. And the minute the evil spirit left, she was no longer able to serve her employee, employers and tell people's fortunes and bring in money. She was useless to them. And of course, they were furious. And before long, Paul and Silas find themselves locked up in prison with their feet in the stocks. But they weren't complaining. They weren't moaning. They weren't indulging in self-pity. What were they doing at midnight? They were singing praises to God. And we're told the prisoners could hear them. They were listening to them. <laughs> but somebody else could hear them. His name is Jesus. He listened from heaven. He said, look at these two, my two servants of mine. My father, look at these two servants of mine. We sent them into that city to preach Jesus. And look what's happened to them. Something could have been done. And instantly, from heaven, from heaven's control room, an earthquake is ordered on earth. And the place is blown apart virtually. And the prisoners are free. Well, they don't go away, but the point is the jailer, the jailer is terrified because in the Roman way of doing things, if a jailer lost his prisoners, his life would be forfeit. He would die. 
And he came in, cried to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And he and his family all became Christians. But we are making the point that from the place of intercession, Jesus saw that situation and he acted. He acted just as he acted on the waters of the lake that night. He sent them into the storm. He saw them in the storm. And he saved them from the storm. Back to John's Gospel again. And this time we read that they were willing to take him into the boat. Because at first they thought he was a ghost, they were scared. But when they heard him say, it is I, don't be afraid, their fears disappeared. It's very interesting. The Greek words translated it as I could equally be translated I am he. And if you remember what Moses experienced when he had been given the great commission of telling the Israelites that they were going to be liberated from Egypt and he said to God, well hang on a minute, he didn't say that perhaps, but he said to God, if I go to the Israelite people and tell them what's about to happen and they ask me, who has told you this? What's his name? The Lord said, tell them, I am. I sent you. I am. One of our old hymns says, Jehovah, great I am. The words could equally mean, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. And Jesus says anyway, he says, I am he. And immediately they're willing to take him on board. And that, of course, is the secret of surviving any storm. In a sense, Jesus is already on board in our lives as our Saviour and Lord, but to include him deliberately, to involve him deliberately, to cry out to him, we can't handle this, Lord. I can't handle this, Lord. But I know you can. They were willing to take the Lord Jesus on board. As if that wasn't good enough, he was willing to teach them on water. You see, in many situations in life, especially the scary ones, the nasty ones, the stormy ones, Jesus wants to teach us. He wants to minister to us. He wants to refine us. He wants to increase our faith. He wants us to come to a place where we instinctively depend more totally on him. And of course it happened here. Because you see, as Peter recognized the voice of Jesus. He said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And Peter gets down out of the boat and walks on the water to Jesus. But then he saw the wind. A strange expression, that isn't it? He saw the waves. He heard the wind, perhaps. But yet the scriptures say he saw the wind. saw the storm. And he was afraid and began to sink, crying, Lord, save me. This is an obvious lesson. The minute we take our eyes away from Jesus and onto our circumstances, our faith can go through the floor. It doesn't work well when we're not looking to Jesus. As long as he was keeping his eye on Jesus, he was able to walk on that water. Whatever motivated Peter to make that request when he invited Jesus to say, Come, we don't know. But was he... He was always a bit reckless, was Peter. Was he thinking, here is an opportunity 
for me to do the impossible if Jesus can walk in the water I'm not any heavier than he is probably I can walk in the water as well do you welcome opportunities to, to, to get into the impossible well you see I've told you this before I've shared this with you before the scripture John 14:12. Jesus said to the disciples the works that I have done you're going to do too and greater works than these what an ambition to give them we can do what our Lord Jesus did not to the same degree not in the same magnitude perhaps but we can do the impossible in certain situations that really stretches our faith and it's meant to stretch our faith life becomes more worthwhile more meaningful when we venture into the realm of the impossible under the safe leadership and lordship of Jesus and in dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit what are we hearing this morning? It was because of obedience that these men that night were in trouble. So if you are facing some storm this morning, it may be not at all in any way your fault. Maybe it's not something that Satan's even been involved in. God has allowed it to happen. He's masterminded it to bring it to pass, not for your destruction but for your enrichment, for your blessing. Eight long hours past were endured by these frightened fishermen before Jesus came. But in the end, he got there, he came, and as soon as he was on board, the situation was gloriously, wonderfully, transformed maybe just maybe the reason the Lord has led me to speak on this passage this morning is that right now you're not in a storm before the week's over you could be I could be we needn't be afraid our Lord Jesus will see all that's happening and our Lord Jesus will come to our rescue he is faithful. What did we sing? What a faithful God have I. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful beyond words that in the midst of all the strange things that happen to us, you are working out your purpose for our lives. And we ask that you will help us more and more to turn instinctively and swiftly to you, our God and Father, for the help we need when we're in situations that are quite beyond our handling or controlling. We thank you that our Lord Jesus is actively engaged, constantly engaged in praying for each one of his people. We marvel at this, but we need this, and we're so grateful for it. And we ask that you will help us to face life confidently. Just because we know we have a loving Heavenly Father who is totally faithful and utterly dependable. And a Saviour who is quick to come to our rescue. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.